last time. Uh, some harder questions about the Holy Spirit uh, that I think are good discussion questions. So hopefully I'll allow some time for discussion at the end on that. But uh, before jumping entirely in, uh, I want to take a minute and just pray for us to uh, be led by the Spirit as we talk about the Spirit. God, would we think rightly about you? Will we think rightly about the Son, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? And God, would we think rightly about the way in which you have gifted us for your glory and our holiness and the benefit of the, the, the building up of the church body through the Spirit? God, would you help us to understand what you desire us to understand of you, uh, to worship what we do understand and worship even when we do not. Uh, Lord, would you spare us from error? Would you spare us from arrogance? It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, last time we talked about the person of the Spirit, began talking about the work of the Spirit. I'm going to pick back up on the work of the Spirit, talking about some of the things in which the Holy Spirit does, um, and including the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, and then come around, as I said, to two questions about uh, that were raised a couple weeks ago. If you got any further questions, uh, we'll follow up uh, at a future time with those. So, let's talk first about how the Holy Spirit empowers missions and evangelism. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 provides the outline, really, for the book of Acts. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what happens in the book of Acts. It's the statement that Christ says will happen, and it is what happens. Um, and Luke traces the work of the Spirit through the apostles as they are empowered by the Spirit that others might trust in Christ, starting in Jerusalem and spreading out to the ends of the earth. If we want to spend significant time, we could walk through the book of Acts and see every way in which the Spirit is active. Uh, several months ago, when I preached from this text, uh, I read many of the passages in Acts. Not all, but many of the passages. I'm not going to do so tonight. Um, but when we think about the book of Acts, it's uh, even my Bible has the, the subtitle, The Acts of the Apostles, um, and it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Um, and we see the Spirit coming upon the apostles in Acts chapter 2 in a powerful way, and we're going to talk about that, but we're not going to do it right here at the beginning. Um, we see numerous ways in which the Spirit empowers missions and evangelism all throughout the book, um, but I'm not going to stop and pause on any particular one. So but let me ask uh, this question. Why is it a good thing that it is the Holy Spirit empowering missions and evangelism? Why is that a valuable thing for us? As compared to ourselves? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is it's the Holy Spirit working through the body of Christ, through the church. It's, it's a common spirit, so you have a unifying mm -hmm. message, a unifying miss mission. Mm -hmm. okay. So the Spirit uh, does things in a unifying way, so you've got the corporate witness of the church. Jesus had, before Jesus told the disciples this, we see at the end of Luke 24 that Jesus had given his disciples a command. Or in Matthew, we have a command of Christ. What is the command of Christ at the end of Matthew? Go and make disciples of all the nations. Okay? And at the beginning of Acts, we have the, hey, you're going to do this, but you're going to do it with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
So as opposed to you as disciples needing to fulfill the command of Christ absent the power of Christ, we have the command and then we have the means by which the command can be accomplished. Um, God knows what we cannot do. By the way, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Spirit is also promised there too. It's not absent in the Matthew version of the Great Commission. He says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So it's not like Matthew doesn't note the Spirit on it. Um, But if God has commanded the disciples, his disciples, to make disciples of all the nations, then it is a good thing that God has provided his power for missions and evangelism through his Spirit. Because... Apart from that, it would be upon us to convince people to trust in Jesus. We've talked a little bit about this um, in some background stuff, but we haven't really gotten there yet um, in our study of systematic theology. But what would be problematic about us simply needing to convince someone to trust in Christ as Savior. What's problematic about that? Somebody else could convince them they don't. Okay. Somebody else could easily convince them alternatively. Okay. I don't just I just don't believe it. That's I, I hear that from family members. Mm-hmm. Well it would be based on who I am rather than based on who Jesus is too or based on who mm-hmm. God is. Like, I would be saving them, not Jesus saving them. Mm-hmm. So it would be the power of our thoughts. Okay. Yeah, it would make salvation dependent on us mm-hmm. and our ability, our power to recognize the truth mm-hmm. and not the Holy Spirit convicting us. So then all of it would depend on us. You didn't convince somebody, that's on you. And not only that, it also assumes something of the non-believer that I think is a bad assumption. What would be the bad assumption about a non-believer? If all it required was us to intellectually argue somebody into trusting Christ. What is the bad assumption there? They could be persuaded by our... Our thoughts. That they can be persuaded by our thoughts. Um, the, the biblical thing is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, incapable of rescuing ourselves, and that would include incapable, I would say, of coming to the intellectual agreement with the, the truths of Scripture. I think it requires the Spirit of God to convict someone of sin, righteousness, and the judgment um, and the way in which to come, and the way in which Christ has fulfilled those covering our sin, being our righteousness, and taking the judgment of God in our place. So, apart from the Spirit, not only does it all would it all simply depend on us, but we also need the Spirit not just working through us, but working on others, um, because we are dead in sin, and in conversion is God making people, making dead people live, not not dull people smarter. So when Paul, when the, sorry, when Luke writes about the Spirit coming in Acts, not only does it make the commandment of the Great Commission feasible for us, it also makes it effective in the lives of others through the work of the Spirit. So it is the Spirit that empowers both us to go and tell and others to receive and repent. We are deeply dependent upon the Spirit, which means that when I talk about our church and being a witness to the neighborhoods and nations, we're not talking about something simply that we do, but that God would do and desire to do through us. We can't save a single sinner. And though we do engage in dialogue with others, sometimes on the, the, truths, the true statements of Scripture and the truths about God, 
and that at times becomes an intellectual thing. It requires not only intellectual assent to the truth of Scripture, but conversion of the Spirit, which is a work of the Spirit, conversion of a person's heart through the work of the Spirit. And we can't save a single sinner, much less the neighborhoods and the nations, but because it's not upon us to save anyone, it's about the Spirit of God saving people, there is no sinner so far gone that they cannot, by the Spirit's conviction and washing and regeneration, according to Titus, be saved. So there's nobody so good in our community or around the globe that we can save them apart from the Spirit. But there's nobody so bad that the Spirit can't save them. So our only hope and their only hope is through God's Spirit. So we see the Spirit at work in missions and evangelism um, throughout Acts. And if you want to have fun, just read through. The next time you're reading through Acts, note the way in which the Holy Spirit empowers missions and evangelism. Not only does the Spirit empower missions and evangelism, the Spirit also helps the believer. Okay? Holy Spirit's good for us. Holy Spirit helps us by reminding us of our salvation. Can I get somebody to read Romans 8, 9 through 11, and then uh, somebody else on Ephesians 1? Who's got Romans 8 for me? Okay. And who's going to read Ephesians 1 in a minute? Passage we looked at extent, or quite a few times a couple weeks ago. All right, thank you. All right, Romans 8, 9 through 11. However, if you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Affirmation, looking back last week on the person of the Spirit, it is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, used interchangeably, by the way, in verse 9. Okay. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, the Spirit of Christ, verse 10, or end of that verse. And then if Christ is in you, the Spirit is live. So uh, stuff on the person of the Spirit there, but also reminding us of salvation. If you've got the Spirit, you are belonging to God and saved. If the Spirit of God is in you, then you will live with God eternally. Similar concept in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Um, Spirit seals us at salvation. It is a guarantee, which is going to be important when we look in Hebrews chapter 6 at the end tonight, that we take the clear language of Ephesians 1 and the clear language of Romans 8 and work through that in the not as clear language in Hebrews chapter 6 at the end tonight. So let's keep in mind these things and what seems to be pretty clear here about him reminding us and being a guarantee of our salvation. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised him from the dead will give life to your immortal bodies. There is spirit who dwells in you. Not only does the spirit remind us of our salvation, uh, in, in reminding us of our salvation, reminds us of the goodness of the gospel, which cultivates in us humility, which cultivates in us worship and all, but he also enables us to live a fruit-filled life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 26. Our boys and girls would probably break out into song for us on this one, but in contrast to the works of the flesh and the desires of the flesh is the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, not becoming conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. Here in Galatians 5, we see the fruit of the Spirit, and those are aspects of God's work in us. Some of you may have participated in a Bible study that looked at each and one of those aspects um, and it traced it extensively. We're not going to do that tonight, but the mark of God at work in us is starting to look like God. Right? Because God is loving. God is patient. God is kind. God is good. God is faithful. And when we have the Spirit at work in us, He produces fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit, according to this text, is those things. So, do you think, then, that this is the only fruit of the Spirit? Why do you say that? I agree with you, by the way. Because God can do anything and have anything and create anything. Right. And we don't know everything he's done. We couldn't probably couldn't remember it. If it's not in the Bible, it doesn't mean it isn't being done. Okay. So you are correct, I think, that the fruit of the Spirit is not only love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. missions and evangelism mm-hmm. so that would be another fruit right. product of the spirit acting mm-hmm. okay. it's a product of the spirit acting the fruit is the product of the spirit acting it's a good way to think of the fruit it's what happens when God gets inside of you he starts doing some things in you and through you and these are in many cases relational things here Not always, but in many cases, relational. The Spirit guides the church. The Spirit reminds us of salvation. And the Spirit Spirit enables us to live a fruit-filled life. So the way in which we become more joyful is not just to do a word study on joy. It's to abide and walk in step with the Spirit who's inside us. It's a supernatural thing to be a people who genuinely love and genuinely show joy and genuinely have peace. It's a mark of God's Spirit in us. And it's something He does produce in us. And if He is producing those things, then I think we have a reason to see. So if those things are coming out of your life, I think there's a reason to believe that it is likely the Holy Spirit putting them in you that they could come out or aiding you and showing them. Jake? So kind of connecting evangelism and missions to that with the fruit of the Spirit, would you say, like, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do missions and evangelism, and if you were to ask the question, well, how does he do that? The answer is the fruit of the Spirit. Um, he gives us the um, these qualities, these character um, this type of character in order to carry out the work that's needed. This character is needed to carry out the work that he has called us to in missions. Would you go there? I would go there, but I would not limit that to the way in which he empowers us for missions and evangelism. Because I think we see in the book of Acts, to go to Acts, not only were the disciples a different type of people, but they were were bold in their proclamation. So we're not like right. you said, it, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. So this is just a short list yeah. and how he does that. As God transforms us into conformity with the Son of God, we are witnessing, manifesting God at work in us. But 
to the the danger that I want to avoid is somebody could easily say, "Well, I'm I'm doing missions and evangelism as I live a fruit-filled life by working on my love, joy, peace, and patience as I abide and walk in step with the Spirit." So I'm witnessing all the time, and I'm not ever using any words. And as my evangelism professor used to say, that's like saying, "Tell me your phone number without using numbers." Um, evangelism and witnessing does require words, not just hey, I'm showing joy, therefore I'm being a witness. So. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a byproduct of that, you know, they started speaking in different mm-hmm. languages for the purpose of talking about what God's done in, the, in, mm-hmm. in their lives and for everybody else. And, right. Yeah, and, and you see the results of the Spirit at work in them as all comes afterwards, as all comes upon souls, signs being done, but also all who believed and had all things in common, they were selling and sharing and practicing generosity and a couple other ways in which we see them walking in step with the Spirit that unified them. So. All right, so we want to in, walk in step. So rather than just focusing on a single aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, Let's walk in step with the Spirit at large. And as we walk in step with the Spirit at large, we're not producing the works of the flesh, but instead we're allowing God to produce from us love, joy, peace, patience, and all manner of other good as opposed to wickedness. Right? Romans chapter 8 26 and 27 tells us that not only does the Spirit remind us of our salvation and enable us to live a fruitful life, but he also aids our prayers. We'll consider this again in a few minutes. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is our weakness? That we don't know how to pray as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts, searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Then it goes on and talks about how God works in those whom he knows and loves and it will glorify. Spirit aids our prayers. So there's times when we don't know how to pray. There's times, according to God's will, we don't know how to pray. And yet the Spirit aids our prayers all the time. When we think we know, and when we have absolutely no clue and know we have no clue, Spirit aids our prayers. The Son intercedes for us and the Spirit intercedes for us, I would say here. Not only does the Spirit help the believer, the Spirit grows the church. Uh, we've already talked about how he grows the church through conversion or empowering mission and evangelism. We see that happening in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. We see him growing the church through conversion and the work of the Spirit there is described. It's that all throughout the, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Church multiplied under the comfort of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. The church is growing. So the church, it grows through conversion, through the power of the Spirit, not through us uh, just simply doing something or getting enough stuff right. So that means that when we think about churches that are growing and churches that are not, Does a church that's growing rapidly through conversion, genuine conversion, show the work of the Holy Spirit? Yes. But can the Holy Spirit be at work in a church that is not growing rapidly through conversion? Absolutely. Can a church be doing the right things and not experiencing a rapid numeric growth? I would say so. But we should ultimately long for and see that it is the Holy Spirit that brings conversion and not us. Not only that, one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit grows the church is through appointing leaders. 
Acts 20, 28. It says that the pay, Paul's giving words here to the leaders of the church of Ephesus. Kind of final departing words to them. It says, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So it's the Holy Spirit that ultimately appoints. So one of the conversations that Jacob and Sam and I have had that's kind of fun is, uh, how is a church identifying and selecting a pastor? And we would say, ultimately, it is through the appointment of the Spirit by the recognition of the church body that a pastor is called. Um, That we want to be a people who are sensitive to the Spirit and who the Spirit appoints to lead us. And uh, then we want to affirm that. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that calls leaders in the early church. And I would say it's the Holy Spirit that calls leaders now. And we as a people want to affirm that. Um, The Holy Spirit not only grows the church, but gifts the church. Got a spiritual gift list there in Romans 12. Paul speaks and he says, The grace given to me, I say, every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Individually, members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with genuineness. And then we see a different list in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 4. Similar concepts, variety of gifts, same Lord, variety of activities. It's God who empowers them. The Spirit's given for the common good, verse 7. Through some, the utterance of wisdom, another utterance of knowledge, another by faith, another gifts of healing, works of miracles, prophecy, ability to distinguish between spirits, various kinds of tongues, another interpretation. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who portions to each one individually as he wills. So I'm not going to walk extensively through all of this, but I would say that just as the fruit of the Spirit is not an exhaustive list, the gift of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit are not an exhaustive list in Scripture. Think that when we look at the intention and the way in which God describes spiritual gifts, He describes them as for the, good, for the common good amongst the local church. So as I said a couple of months ago when we were walking through this in a sermon format, if it is for the good of the church in a particular location, common good of the church, then there's a variety of ways in which God can gift that are not simply limited to this. And at that point, I used the example of I think God is using, has gifted for common good amongst our church, people with technological capacities to do our streaming ministry. And I still hold to that, they, that, they exi- that the existence of the gift of streaming was not in the New Testament, um, but that the presence, that it still can be a spiritual gift. And I described the way in which I think spiritual gifts are different from just capacities and talents. Um, the biggest difference, and as I gave then, was that I think Pastor Sam is incredibly talented to play guitar, but he's not functioning according to a spiritual gifting. If he's playing a jam session with a buddy um, or even outside of a church environment, I think God has gifted him to use his abilities in a supernatural way, in a neat way, inside the church. So I look at gift listings and gift inventories, and I I find spiritual gift inventories uh, a fun thing to do from time to time just to see what I come down with and how I feel on that day um, based upon what I like to do and how I rate myself on giving things. But I do not look at a spiritual gift inventory list and say, well, hey, today I got this one, so let me go practice that and not practice the other ones. Which, by the way, like the work of the Spirit in us um, should call us all to evangelism. Um, we'll cl- use the classic example. Well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, if you've got the Holy Spirit, you do. You might not have it as your primary manifestation of your gifting on your spiritual gift inventory, but if you've got the Spirit, you've got the Spirit in you, and He is the Spirit of witness. 
and empowers witness. So um, I don't look at the spiritual gift inventories. I know other believers um, that hold heavily to spiritual gift inventories. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't know if you kind of pin them down, if they would say they were exhaustive, but they found them helpful. I still think they can be helpful because I think we can see ways in which God has gifted us and talented us and worked through us for the common good amongst the building up and for the building up of the local church through using them. But I don't think that they're absolute necessities and I don't think they're always going to get them right. And I don't think that you're, if you just take one in your spiritual gift and it gives you one, you're like, I just don't know if I have that one. Well, ask another brother or sister in Christ, first of all, um, because that's probably more accurate than the inventory list is anyways. But we don't, pass out spiritual gift inventories here in the church for that reason Um, because it's valuable in some senses but it is not exhaustive by any means and how you use it can be problematic Um, do any of you now that I've already kind of gone on a rant on it do any of you love spiritual gift inventories I found them Earlier in my Christian walk, as I was beginning in it, and kind of, hey, what am I gifted in? Where am I talent? I did find more value, at that, I think, at that point than I would at this point. And I think there's some value there for a newer believer. In particular. Jumping off yeah, jumping off point. Just try it. I, yeah. I was gifted in helps when I did it. Yeah. And I washed the laundry for the tables. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, I can do this. So, I mean, I think it was, you know, a way to get started. Right. If, if we don't use it, if we use it to the extent that it can be intended, where is this helpful, not where is it limiting? Um, I think it can be helpful. I'm weary of them becoming limiting. Um, so, anybody else like them? If you don't have a good gift of witnessing, are you not a Christian? I would say uh, that you can be a Christian without the good gift of witnessing, but that if the Spirit is never trying to uh, come through you in a witnessing way, then we're probably quenching Him and stifling His work because I, I think that the Spirit is not only producing in us love, joy, and peace, but I think he, when we look through Acts in particular, the Spirit is at work in our witnessing and encouraging us to manifest Christ both in action and in word. Listen, um, Ole will tell me, I just don't believe it. I just don't, don't believe it. And or some, something else detrimental about the church. And uh, it just, so a lot of times I just stay quiet when it starts an argument. And at this point, I'm the only one on my side. So is that calories? Is that not doing what God wants you to do? What is that? Uh, I think you raise a really good question that comes down to listening to the Spirit in a given situation. I think through, um, there's a proverb, I believe it's 26.4 and 26.5. Proverbs 26.4, I believe, says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Proverbs 26.5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he think himself wise. So the question is, what type of fool are you dealing with? You've got to know the fool. Don't pity him, but know him, okay? You've got to know what type of fool you're dealing with. Is this somebody that you need by the Spirit of God to just let them talk? Or, and, they give, and that changes by situation. And there, there comes a place, according to God's Spirit, giving us, granting us wisdom to know when do we carry on a little further dialogue and when do we say, God, at this moment it appears pretty clear to me that if I go any further with this, I'm going to join the fool in their folly instead of pointing them to wisdom. Um, and that is both a, a principle for when to engage in, and when not to engage in any type of argument, but much less in witnessing. Um, so. Nowhere in the Bible did we ever have a witness, uh, uh, anybody 
being persuaded after long conversations. You know, Jesus didn't say, hey, hey, you know, you got to walk this way, and the guy just walks away, well, see that? He didn't try to convince them, you know, he, he made the offer, and if the guy took it, he, 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 he you know, follow him, and they followed him, um, but, you know, he didn't say, come by, and, are you sure you don't want to, you know, he didn't, he didn't, you know, beg, because uh, that was kind of beneath him, but, and that's the same, I think, with us, if the Holy Spirit's not working in there, Live, there's nothing that you're going to say that's going to kind of convince them. So you can only pray that for the Holy Spirit to work on them, and then mm -hmm. to show you the opening. And I think that's uh, you know, Lonnie. I think you're you're on it at a cautious level, though. We need to. Uh, th there's a lot of. There's a lot of Christians that are argumentative, and I think you're right that we should not be argumentative, but we don't need to confuse argumentation with rational persuasion as well. Um, and, and Paul seems to engage in a little bit of that, particularly, uh, I, I thought, as soon as you said it, I thought, all right, and was, where does it finish it? So in Acts 18, 28, as he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So... In one sense, we don't see Paul walking behind him and saying, hey, you guys are walking away. You don't have any interest in dialoguing with this. And I think th that would be the point where we'd say, all right, the Spirit's not leading this for further dialogue. But also if we took it and said, well, they, they've got a different opinion automatically, so therefore clearly the Holy Spirit's not working, we'd have to say, well, what was Paul doing? And he was powerfully refuting them, and not only private, but powerfully refuting them in public. Um, so there, there is a little bit of delicate balance there. But I think I would look on most of those situations and say, you know, God doesn't seem to have a very receptive audience today in this person. Um, so. But there are also times, too, where if, if your words are not going to be heard, your actions also and how you live your life and the fruit of the Spirit working through your actions in and itself is also a witness. Um, it produces a different style of life that is, you know, the scriptures talk a lot about it. I mean, certainly that's not an excuse to never, never talk, because I mean, we're told to always be prepared to give an answer, right? But, but our actions in themselves can be also a, a pretty strong witness too. And they, when, when the actions are not in support of the words, we have a great problem. All right, uh, on your note packet, does the Spirit still do miracles? Uh, the example that I would, that, and I quoted or cited Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, which talks about being dead in your sin and yet made alive in Christ. Um, and the, the greatest miracle of the, the Spirit happens on a very regular basis, and it is bringing dead people to life. Um, God is constantly bringing dead people to life. He is raising the spiritually dead to spiritual life all around the globe every day. Um, so the Spirit certainly still does miracles. The question that people actually want to know is, well, do we still see the physically dead raised to life like we see early in the book of Acts? And I would not say that the Spirit cannot. I would not say that God cannot. But I don't see people walking around with the ability to look at others on a regular basis and say, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, get up and walk. That seems to have changed towards, in the book of Acts, seems to have changed with the apostles, in my opinion. Okay? People today don't generally do that. Does that mean that God cannot use people for individual with to heal others or raise the dead physically. It doesn't mean God cannot. Um, but I do not, I, on my perspective on this one, and you'll see it uh, kind of coming out in some of our further discussion, do not see that as a regular ongoing gift of God through believers um, today. To heal physically or to raise the dead in some of those ways that we see in the book of Acts. I think when we look in the book of Acts, 
that what we see is God doing a powerful work to manifest and to validate the words and the, through the works of the apostles according to the power of the Spirit. So I would say that most of the miraculous gifts in the book of Acts are ways to validate the message of the apostles in its first times that it's going out. Similar to the way in which I would say there's a reason we see Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead when they lie to God. And, but we don't see that throughout the rest of the New Testament, by and large. I'm sure there were others. I mean, in Corinth, there were all sorts of bad things happening in, in the church in Corinth, and yet they're not just dropping dead constantly. When we see the book of Acts, I think it is much like seeing the book of Exodus, and when God has given his people a covenant, he backs it up in many cases through miraculous acts as a display of his power and a validation of his words and his promises. And I think by and large, that is what we see in the book of Acts. Others would disagree with me. Other believers, other Baptists would disagree with me on this one. Um, But uh, since we're in a lesson on the Holy Spirit, it would be uh, weird for me not to at least give you a perspective. And at some point, you're going to probably, even if I did my best to play my hands evenly, you probably would be able to decide where I land on that one. Similarly, the next question that often comes up is what does the, Holy, the Bible teach us about, spirit, the Holy, about the Holy Spirit and tongues and the, and the speaking in tongues? All right. As I said a couple of months ago, and I'll re- just restate it quickly, when I look through the New Testament, what I see is I see four different ways in which tongues can be spoken. All right. I, I see tongues as known languages in Acts chapter 2, verses 6 and following. Nobody stood up and interpreted. People there at the first Pentecost as an act of God somehow heard people speaking in a language that they were not normally speaking in. be similar if I showed up in the Ethiopian service and started preaching and they heard me in Amharic. That would be a work of the Spirit in known languages. They, in the book of Acts chapter 2, did not at Pentecost have one person speaking something that sounded like gibberish to everybody else and then them say, hey, what did he say and what does it mean? They didn't turn to anybody there. This is different than the way that most in the charismatic bent practice the speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2 looks different and it is very clear what's happening in Acts chapter 2. That that is the speaking of known languages. I, the way I read through and play it out in my mind in Acts is they were speaking what they were speaking and what they knew they were speaking and everybody else heard it in their own language. So it would be, you know, me speaking it right in a joint service in our church. It would be me speaking in what I understand to be English and our English learners understanding it in English and our Hispanics understanding it in Spanish and our Ethiopians hearing it in Amharic and I'm speaking in English. Speaking of known languages um, in a way that they could hear it and understand it seems to be. Yeah. Which is vastly different than many in the charismatic bent would say, looks like speaking in tongues. Instead, they would though, but they would use biblical evidence. Let me be fair here. They'd go over 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22 and 23 and 27 and 28. And those that practice speaking in tongues, not known languages, but tongues, um, would use these passages. Um, And some would say, well, we practice not only them, but the text goes on to talk about the speaking in tongues and the speaking of tongues and interpretation. And they would say, hey, this is what we do. Um, And that's the way that they would practice church. Now, Where do I stand on that one? Well, you guys haven't heard me speak in tongues in church, and we haven't practiced that one here at First Baptist in quite a while, um, if ever. So kind of gives a hint on where we're at on that one. Um, I do not think that whatever the Corinthian church was doing is supposed to be done in churches today. One, 
the, the, the biggest reason for that, I look at it and say, well, you know, it's got to be it, the purpose of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 probably wouldn't be understood as the same purpose of tongues in our society today for people to uh, understand and the gospel and grow in it and all of those things. People would look at it and say, that's weird. Uh, beyond that, I think if tongues were all that important for the New Testament church to be practicing, I think Paul would have spoken about it to somebody other than the Corinthian church. And the rebuttal is often, well, you know, from the charismatic camp, well, they were, everybody knew that it was important, so therefore he didn't need to tell it all the other churches. He didn't need to tell the F, church at Ephesus or the church at Colossae, and he didn't need to tell Paul or Titus and Timothy because they knew it. If that is the case, then why did Paul tell Timothy to preach the word? Like, Paul felt the need to tell Timothy, preach the word. So to just say it was everybody did it, so therefore he didn't need to talk about it, would be to apply the same standard. It's like, well, nobody was preaching the word, so that's why he told Timothy to do it. You know, I mean, preaching the word should have been known. So the fact that Paul didn't tell any other church makes me think that the church at Corinth just had some weird stuff going on, and they did, and that this is one of the weirder things that they had going on that none of the other churches needed any instruction about. So I tend to say, not sure all that was going on in Corinth, but it doesn't seem normative for the rest of the churches in the New Testament age or us today. There's language about private prayer in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 through 19. He talks about praying in my mind not or not praying in my mind. He talks about, and some people would say, well, listen, I have this language that I speak of, speak to God in, and it's not a language that I know. Uh, it's a private prayer language. And this is something that uh, I would say many Baptists would affirm. I don't. Okay? So I'll go on the record. I don't have a private prayer language um, in one sense, in this sense. But in another sense, I would say, man, absolutely every believer's got a private prayer language. It's called the Holy Spirit who prays for them with groanings too deep for words. But I do not. I, it wouldn't be private if I told you I did. But, hey, you know, like I don't. And the way that I read through this is I say, well, what's the intent of this in 1 Corinthians 14? Does that intent still exist? And Paul is talking about, listen, praying with the mind and according to the Spirit, and it just doesn't seem to fit. So three, there's three types of New Testament tongues. First is other languages. Something was happening in Corinth about the speaking of tongues publicly. There was a private prayer language in chapter 14 also. And then I would say many versions of commonly understood uh, or commonly referenced tongues and today in particular are of human or demonic origin. It is a fascination with something and not a gift from God. It's a distraction from God and his work through God's Son and not testifying to the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit. Um, a couple of, uh, I, I had a discussion when we were working, when I was working through this over the summer with one of our other staff members, and they said, listen, you know, that whole business when we watch on TV of the guy like comes by and he pushes on him and has the gift of the Spirit and they like fall out on their back. He said, man, whenever I read the New Testament, I never see anybody doing that. I see him lying for forward before Jesus and bowing before Jesus, not falling backwards in a weird way. Um, I think that that stuff is just not only to me weird, but wrong. And it's an unhealthy fascination with something, with, that, with what is stated as a gift of God rather than what is a clear gift of God, the gospel. Um, and um, I'd say in many cases it's not healthy. In most cases, it's not healthy um, to be fascinated. Let's go back to the person of the Spirit from last week. What does the Holy Spirit clearly do in Scripture? Clearly exists to exalt God the Father through the work of the Son by reminding us of the work of Christ. He doesn't just get a bunch of attention. Even in Acts chapter 2, what do people do when the, the known languages are spoken? Nobody's walking away and saying, man, let's do something crazy for the Holy Spirit. It's like, no, let's trust in the gospel through the work of the Spirit. Now, um, 
we could chat more about that, but I managed to talk long enough that I want to get into the two questions that were raised last week. And if you want to talk more about uh, the gift of the Spirit and what I think or what you think on tongues and uh, other things, you're welcome to. By the way, some of your homework is on the what what is the gift of prophecy in particular, or or do or do miraculous gifts? Continue the position called is continual continualism or continuationism is that what it is continuationism yeah yeah uh, yeah both but the opposite position is that of cessationism and there's all sorts of middle grounds your homework the first two articles you have are fairly from my stuff Jacob would say they're light reading but I call them heavy you know fairly heavy reading for me at this point. I'd say read one or the other. If you're fascinated and intrigued by both, go with both. One looks more at the, specifically at the gift of prophecy, but the other one does look at prophecy as part of the miraculous gifts. Um, but I would suggest either reading one of those to take your pick, and then a article on fruit of the Spirit versus self-righteousness, which is a uh, more devotional level reading. So last week I asked you what questions do you have, and one of you asked what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? So let's turn over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, 30, 32. I like the way that you gave me two really hard questions that have the Holy Spirit as a word in them. So therefore, it was a fair game question, I guess. So. First, the words in question are from Christ or this. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Anytime you come to a biblical passage, you want to know what's going on in the context. So contextually, Jesus has cast a demon out of a guy. And the Pharisees come by and say, hey, you're only casting out demons because you're possessed by demons. You're doing the work of Satan as you cast out demons. And Jesus is like, wait a minute. Like, for real? Your, your foolishness has now reached a new level. Because, you know, Satan doesn't cast out demons. He puts them in you. He doesn't get rid of them. Um, that's not what's going on there. And then he goes on to tell them, it's God at work. You should clearly be able to recognize that demons going out is a good thing and that that's the work of God. So, but the Pharisees so hard-hearted and cast in their hard-heartedness, so set in it that he turns to them and he says, whoever speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And the impetus most scholars think is that what Christ is saying is there is, listen, if you're attributing having just seen this work of the Spirit of God through the Son of God to that of demonic origin, then you're so hard-hearted and set in your op- opposition to God that you have slanderously or blasphemed or slandered God's Spirit's work and are not going to be forgiven. It's an amazing statement that they could not be forgiven in light of the fact that in Exodus, I believe it's chapter, Exodus 34, God talks about the fact that he forgives and he is a gracious God and kind and slow to anger. And then he says, now you can't be forgiven. And yet also, as we consider this passage, over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul talks about how he was a blasphemer and yet forgiven. So what is blaspheme? Blaspheme means to slander or maliciously speak against. And in this case, the Pharisees were maliciously speaking against the work of God's Son, calling it the work of the devil, indicating a hardness, a set opposition, I would say. So I want to read somebody else's work, and hopefully it's helpful for you. It's typical to, to note that blasphemy isn't a specific act on its own, in this case, but a state of enmity and impenitence or lack of repentance lasting unto death. It's a hardness of heart. 
if not repented of in this life, will prove to be unforgiven. In this sense, the blasphemy is understood simply as unbelief that persists throughout life. And more specifically, it's a hardened evaluation of Jesus's work as being demonic in origin. A hardened evaluation of Jesus's work as being demonic in origin. It goes on to say, or maybe somebody else, this is a message not you know, like we don't have to worry about, if you're worrying about whether or not you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you haven't done it um, because it is the evidence of a hard, impenitent heart. And if you're asking yourself that question, then you don't have a hard, impenitent heart. It's an action of the heart, not just simply words, by the way, as well. There's been Peters and Pauls and millions of other believers throughout history that have fallen or rejected Jesus as Paul did. Let's think Paul. Paul was a blasphemer who killed God's people, describes himself as a blasphemer, and yet forgiven. Peter, this will help bridge us into our next question. Peter denied Jesus three times and yet was restored in his relationship with Jesus. So on one hand, we'll use, we're going to use Peter and Paul to be our two examples, case studies on first, can a, is it, what is blasphemy against the Spirit and, you know, is denying, is blasphemy against God in general there? So is blasphemy against God or the, the work of Christ a forever thing? It's hard for us to know when somebody is guilty of this because we never know when they're hard, it becomes hardened heart becomes hardened. So we don't need to, we need to avoid labeling anybody of this because we don't know when that it becomes permanent, willful rebellion and unbelief. But what, it, what, it, what would I say that blasphemy against the Spirit is? I would say that the unpardonable sin and blasphemy of the Spirit are one and the same, and it is permanent, willful rebellion and unbelief upon the examined work of Christ. It's looking and saying, uh-uh, not for me, not right, wrong. And it becomes at some point permanent and willful rebellion of which God gives us over to a hardened heart. Okay? So the last one that was raised, can you fall away from the Holy Spirit? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. We don't normally describe this as uh, falling away from the Holy Spirit, but because this is a lesson on the Holy Spirit, I'll, I'll phrase the question that way so that it's a fair question. Um, often this is described as can somebody become a Christian and lose their Christianity or not be saved and not always be saved, lose their salvation. The text says this, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, there's our words, makes it a fair question, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. The land that is drunk, the rain that went, often falls on it, produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed. Its end is to be burned. The difference, by the way, in fruitful and unfruitful. Verse 9, not often included in the paragraph there. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Okay, so the author of Hebrews, some would say, look at this text and say, these are people who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of God, and have fallen away, and you can't ever restore them to repentance. So the way that some would phrase this is, there are some who were Christians, tasting, were enlightened, all of those things, and they have now in some way sinned enough that they cannot be restored. Okay, first, let's remember Peter. Okay, Peter was restored. Denied Jesus after being told about I mean, if anybody was going to get it right for at least a few minutes, it should have been him after he was warned about it. And he still got it wrong. It's not a noble character until he got the Holy Spirit. And I would say, going back to the first one, <laughs> blaspheming Jesus, but not the Holy Spirit. Okay. He could look two so, steps. Yep. So we can, we can toy with whether or not Peter had the Holy Spirit. Um, 
and, and how the Holy Spirit was working in that. We can, we can toss out Peter if we want to for a minute as a case study. I would say that he was still restored, but I would actually tell you that I think the way that this text is communicating is that all of this from verse 4 is those who have seen things from Scripture being enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, and shared in the Holy Spirit, meaning they've experienced the things. I would say that this is the presence of people amongst the people of God that are not the people of God. So more specifically, the people that attend church for a long time but never get Jesus. The reason I would say that We've already hit at it, one, on the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 clearly says we're sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, not as a maybe. Beyond that, the author of Hebrews says in verse 9, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I would say that when we get to verse 9 and he talks about things that belong to salvation, He's saying the things that those other things are external, they're close, they're like being amongst those who are saved, but you're not saved. Of you, we're sure of salvation. The things that belong to salvation are in you. Those other things are contrasted, I think, with salvation in verse 9. Beyond that, Hebrews 3 and verse 14 says this, We have come to share in Christ... We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the picture there in 3.14 is we have come to share in Christ, not if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. Not we will come to share in Christ, but we have come. There's this concept that if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end, we have become partakers of Christ. The key point here, according to one pastor, and I think he puts it better than maybe I can, not we will become and not we are now partakers, but we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast our assurance. In other words, perseverance and faith proves that you are a partaker in Christ, which means if you don't persevere in faith, it does not show that you are fall out of partaking in Christ, but that you never became a partaker in Christ. So what that would go on to say, and the rest of Hebrews and the arguments about Christ on our behalf and his perfect sacrifice in our place would suggest that it is not possible to be a Christian who stops being a Christian, but it is totally possible to be confused and think you are one. amongst the people of God, but much as Jesus said in Matthew 13 in the parable of the soil, only one of those types of soil produced fruit. But Everything sprang up and looked good for a little while, or some, some other stuff sprang up and looked good for a little while. So also, I would suggest that I think that the author of Hebrews is talking about the fact that there are some that at for a period of time in life, appear to be a Christian, and of whom at the end of life, Jesus will say, you did these things thinking they were right, and depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. But does that mean that they lost their salvation? No, they didn't lose the Holy Spirit. They were amongst the people, around the people of God, but not the people of God, they saw the Holy Spirit and his work, even began to see some life in their own life change, but did not have the Spirit of God, because I think I, I, I read what is most cloudy through what is most clear. And for me, those passages in Romans 8, 9 through 11, and the passage in Ephesians are very clear that we have the Spirit, and that is a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. Also, we're losing our salvation. That means in some way Jesus paid for our sins and then we're going to have to pay for them on our own. Because if we are justified in Christ and then we can somehow lose our justification, we never got justification in the first place or else it's like double pay for sins. 
God looks at us and says, well, Jesus paid for it. Well, now you did enough bad stuff. You've lost your salvation. Now you've got to be paying for your sins. So I think that the doctrine of the atonement suggests that our salvation must be, if saved, always saved. And I think that the Holy Spirit's presence as a permanent seal suggests the same. Does that mean that this Hebrews passage is incredibly clear and as nice and neat and tidy as I would like it to be to say what I want it to say and what I think it says? No. It is a hard passage to read and understand. I'm five minutes over, so they need to be pressing questions. Good, no dialogue. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we can chat as necessary, but let's pray. God, we thank you uh, that your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. So God, help us to think rightly about you and the wonders of salvation and the warnings against sin. God, would we be warned, as the author of Hebrews does, about settling in a position that is not close with you, walking tightly with you according to your spirit of holiness in us. Uh, God, would we love you and would we be certain of our salvation according to your spirit at work in us? Would you remind us of salvation and assure us of it? And God, would you produce fruit in our life that looks like you in us. God, for your glory and for our own assurance and our good. It's in your name we pray. Amen.